One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, hello. How are we all? It's, um, it's Thursday. It's Homo sapiens. It's all these things we know and love. How are we all doing? Things are good this end. As you may have noticed, my husband has made a couple of appearances in this here podcast over the past couple of weeks. Well, he is currently on a jet plane to England because he's gone back. He's gone home. You just got me. I'm flying solo. Well, I say that I'm not flying solo at all because we've got Elizabeth Day on the podcast. Elizabeth Day is the host of international podcast smash hit, How to Fail. And I started listening to How to Fail right when it came out because I just think it's a really smart idea. People talking about their failures, if you've never listened to it, it's people being really honest and what I love about it specifically, and I think the reason I connected to it, and I think I say this to her herself, is that I think it's very true to the LGBT experience. I'm just lighting a candle. In that I think we can feel quite isolated in the queer experience and we feel like we're failing. We feel like we're getting being queer wrong. And I know that I felt like that. And I know that all the way back at the beginning of this podcast, me and Will used to talk about that. And then me and Alan covered similar stuff. And a lot of you, when you write in, talk about it. So having Elizabeth's podcast was so nice to hear people being candid about their own failures and finding common ground in failure, really. So she's now written a book all about friendship called Friendaholic. And it's really, really good. And it's sort of charting. Hi. That's my mother home because my mother has come to stay. Um, she's cooking tonight. We did a lovely barbecue the other day. Mum made big hearty salads and she made this vegetarian deep pan pizza, which is tomatoes, olives, artichokes, all with cheese on top. And it's like a sort of deep pan vegetarian pizza. It's lovely. Anyway, she's cooking tonight. Don't know what we're going to have. Um, but I'm very lucky to have her cooking for me. Anyway, Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict is the book. And it's sort of addressing the fact that there is tons of language for romantic love and none for how to navigate friendships. 
It's a really good read. I loved it. So that's all, you know, very exciting. Um, have you caught up with last week's episode with the wonderful Woody Kirk? You must. Uh, Woody's lovely. And you all wrote in nice messages about it, which was lovely. If you want to get in touch, email us at hello at homo sapiens podcast or at homo sapiens on Instagram. Agony uncles, keep them coming, people. And before my chat with Elizabeth, let's hear from you. You've been getting in touch loads and it's really nice. I've just got to start by doing an apology, a correction, because somebody wrote in, and I'm really sorry, I don't have the message on the screen now, so I can't remember who it was, but thank you for who wrote it in, to alert me to the fact that we replayed the Hannah Gasby episode the other day, but since then, Hannah has changed their pronouns to they, them. So I was misgendering them by using their old pronouns and that was incorrect for me and I uh, should not have so just wanted to say sorry to um, Hannah to anyone I may have offended. We've got an email from Darren about wombats that's a change of tone isn't it? Hello Chris big fan of the podcast here Darren hi I'm from Bristol but I'm also currently working down under in gorgeous Tasmania editing a wildlife film and I can therefore wholeheartedly confirm that it's the wombat that produces square poos. In fact, I see many a wombat and its square deposits on my lunchtime walks along the wild east coast. This is so fantastic. Thank you so much for writing in, Darren. Fun fact, wombats also like to poop on high rocks to spread their scented info across the landscape, a bit like Facebook, but smellier. That's amazing. Darren, that is wonderful. Thank you so much for writing in and clearing that up. We've also got an email about queer friendships from Stephen. You asked for feedback about how friendships have evolved, and I thought it'd be useful to explain my experience as an older gay man. If you were born in the 1960s, you came of age when HIV forward slash AIDS was hitting the headlines and homophobia was rampant. The older generation that we might have looked to were either highly closeted or wiped out by HIV. Consequently, we have had to work it out for ourselves, including how to grow old. Friendships have played an important part in doing this. When you are young, you make friends easily. Then, if you pair off, your circle becomes slightly smaller as you tend to mix with other couples. You make some new couple friends, but naturally your career develops and you focus on other things. You expect your friends to be there, and I suppose you just assume that as you get older, you will see more of them as you go towards retirement. My experience, however, is that you lose more friends than you expect. Older straight people can offer support and guidance to the next generation, whether this is children or grandchildren. Clearly, gay people can do this too, and intergenerational friendships can be very valuable. Well, what I will say, Stephen, is I love my intergenerational friendships. So I really hear you there. Older people can gain a lot from younger people, not just explaining to them how things operate, (laughs) but their enthusiasm, optimism and lack of fear can be very refreshing. People often say that you worry less as you age because you have seen everything. My experience is that you become less certain of things. Interesting you say that, Stephen, because I feel like that as well. I feel like naivety is a wonderful thing. Well, I mean, I've become more certain of other things. I can spot an arsehole a mile off. I don't mean it like that. How dare you? Um, I can support someone who's rude a mile off. That's what I'm trying to say. My conclusions are that the LGBT plus community is not very good these days at providing spaces for friendship to develop. And in particular, intergenerational friendships. Unless we start to talk about it, we will not make any progress. Stephen. Stephen, thank you so much for this. It's really lovely that you've brought this up. And I want to know what you all think. What's getting in the way here? Unless we start to talk about it, says Stephen. 
Have you had an intergenerational friendship that's been great? Have you had one that's been bad? I mean, why not? Let's get the full spectrum. What do you think? Do we do we need more spaces? Do you know of a space where queer friendships are blossoming? You know, uh, and I'm not just talking about grinder people. Um, let me know. Send us your thoughts. Well, I think that feels as good a time as any to continue the th- the friendship tip and go and have a chat with my podcasting hero, Elizabeth Day. Here it is. It's so nice to talk to a fellow podcaster who has another full time job. Because I totally get oh, I it. Like I, you do, an, you do fen, like a phenomenal thing with this podcast. But I know how hard you must work. Well, isn't it funny how um, I don't know what you feel about your job, but like this is like you've written a book about uh, called Friendaholic about mm-hmm. friendships. Um, but this is like uh, the podcast is like my naughty friend who I love, yeah, um, who I get to <laughs> hang out with all the time. It's the one who texts you on a Friday night being like, oh, my God, come to this party. That's mm. what Homo sapiens is to me. And then I've got more, my more steady relationships, which are a bit more serious and I have to do meetings about and things like that. Yeah, you have to <laughs> be more grown up. I don't know if you up. feel the same. Um, I do feel the same. I do, it's interesting because How to Fail definitely started as my naughty friend, my passion yeah. project. I felt very creatively liberated when I did it. I was like, well, let's just throw something at the wall and see if if it sticks and um you're right it was a really fun thing that I was doing entirely on my own along with my Mm. lovely sound engineer Chris Sharp who I found on Google and he's still with me but but ultimately it was just it was something that I wanted to do for selfish reasons in the sense that I, I felt that I had failed in my personal life and I was sort of seeking answers and then to discover that other people wanted to know the same answers and have the same conversations was an Mm. amazing thing but I could never have anticipated that it would become what it has become so now I still Mm. really enjoy it but it's more like a long-term committed relationship which is still fun (laughs) (laughs) they're still a really fun partner and I wouldn't want to be with anyone else but I definitely feel more of a responsibility Well, that's because it's so damn successful, you see. So you've had to, it's had to turn into a proper thing. You know, listen, I've loved it since I ever first heard it. And I think there's many ways everybody will connect to failure. But I think LGBT people really connect. And I know I did because two things. Like, I think for anyone listening who hasn't listened to it, I think you will connect for these reasons. I'm talking about how to fail the podcast of because um, we have to point out which one of Elizabeth's many accomplishments we're talking about is that you are it's actually you know section 28 etc it is ingrained in you that you are a failure of, of a person you have something you have done something wrong there is something wrong about you and you're you, you know you're not used to hearing candor from people about that right it was so wonderful to hear that being said for the first time and also shame you know like failure and shame come hand in hand right and it's something that like when someone explained shame to me and it wasn't Brené Brown actually it was someone prior to her but you know it was like it was such a like light bulb moment of finding like the shape of something within you and going I'm not doing that anymore you know so that's why it spoke to me well that I cannot tell you how much that means to me. That's such a beautiful thing for you to say to me and really goes to the core of why I wanted to do the podcast, why I still remain so passionate about it. And I've had so many amazing LGBTQ plus guests 
And I have been really honoured to hear those stories. And actually recently I had Monroe Bergdorf on and she talked about yeah. growing up in the shadow of Section 28. And there's this amazing bit in her book, Transitional, which is all about how when you grow up and you don't feel you belong, there are no stories in, in mainstream culture that reflect your experience of love. The the vast majority of pop songs or romance novels all celebrate heteronormative love. And you can't mm. see yourself reflected. Not only can you not see yourself reflected, but as you say, you can't speak your own truth because mm. it's illegal and shameful. And then another guest who I always think of in this context is Andrew Scott, um, mm. amazing actor, hot priest, etc. And um, <laughs> yeah. one of his failures was his failure to be heteronormative. Those were his words. And the reason he said that was not because he felt it was his failure. He felt that he was failing his family, mm. that, that they would have a certain expectation of how they wanted their son's life to be. And we got into a really interesting conversation about the language that has become so endemic in a lot of media, the language of quote unquote, openly gay. <laughs> and yeah. he said, you know, no one would say I was openly Irish. Even saying <laughs> openly implies that there's something that you need to be closed about, implies that there needs yeah. to be shame that you carry. And so we had this yeah. fascinating conversation about the language. And again, that idea of quote unquote, coming out of the closet, that again, just gives the impression that there's something that you need to step out from in order mm. to be acceptable. And so it's a very important part for me to bring stories like that to light and to have those kind of conversations. So thank you for saying that. Not at all. And actually, you know, like I think um, I'm trying, I'm stalling because sweeping generalizations are incoming. But like, I think that in when you've been through stuff, it forces you to explore theories and themes in order to make sense of them and that mm. can be shame and it can be failure and if you haven't been through stuff like you aren't able to name things and I actually think that's why failure and things are so wonderful because you you earn some tools yeah um and what I also think is really interesting what you're saying about Monroe is like I'm a massive fan of Monroe's have been mm. for ages and she has been wonderful to me and all the rest of it um I think she crystallizes so many things that were sleep in me as a kid but she just did more about it to be quite honest you know like yeah. uh and you know like, I grew up with lots of examples of love that, that were like okay fine they weren't they weren't straightforwards and they weren't everywhere but you know there were gay storylines in in soap operas and things and you know and all of that but to imagine what it was like for Monroe is um but then to see them, the way that she's living her life now is so amazing. And you get yeah. this weird feeling. And I imagine, you know, I imagine you have it in a, well, you answer the question, but you have it in a sort of generation of women way that you kind of, me and Mum are probably 10, 15 years apart in age, but you kind of do this like handoff between each other of like, mm. you you are taking this further than I could have at your age, you know? Yeah. And there are things that you're breaking down. She's actually breaking them down. It's not even, you know, it, it's a group effort. But, you know, that's one of the things that I love. I wonder if, do you feel like that with intergenerational stuff with women? I definitely do. How old are you, Chris? Uh, 40 in the shade. 
Okay, well, you look amazing. So I, it's just, I want to know who I'm speaking. So I'm 44. So you, so you know, you've just entered the best decade, in my opinion. (laughs) I absolutely feel that. And that's also something that came as a surprise to me because Mm. I have an enormous amount of listeners who are women in their 20s. And not only do I feel I learn an enormous amount from my younger sisters, and the most obvious example of that for me was the Me Too movement in 2017. And I witnessed that movement, and I happened to be in LA at the time when it all first blew up. And I was looking at people taking to Twitter saying I was sexually harassed in this way, and I was reading their experiences thinking, how horrendous. And then thinking, oh, aren't I lucky that I've never had that happen to me. And then the more the younger women tweeted about what had happened to them and that they were categorising a sexual assault, the more I realised that it had happened to me multiple times. It's just that I hadn't had the language or the bravery to label it or to call it out at the time. And it was suddenly, it was like those... 3D pixelated pictures you used to get in Athena poster shops where you you stare at them and you suddenly see this amazing sort of Atlantis seascape come to life. I was like, oh, I just saw everything differently. And I feel so lucky to be living in an era where that's happening, where a lot of younger women have the courage and the awareness and the ability to question context that I didn't have because at the time that I entered journalism and my background's in print journalism, it was still seen as you're so lucky to be here as a woman. Like you've got exclusive mm. entry to an all male boys club, lucky you. And so you just thought, well, that's just a bit of harmless flirting that that guy's doing on the subs desk. And I've just got to put up with it because that's the price of gratitude that I have to pay for being yeah. here. And um, it's so great to see that shifting. By the same token, I, I'm i lucky enough that I get to meet a lot of my lovely listeners because I do live shows. And um, they've been kind enough, those women in their 20s that I referred to, to say that I have guided them through some tricky times in their lives because I have the privilege of being on the other side of that. And I can remember mm. how confusing my 20s were because you're struggling to pay your rent. It's the first time for many of us that we're out of full-time education. There are no exams you can sit to prove that you're doing a good job being an adult. (laughs) You you know, you're constantly, you're trying to keep up your social life and show what a good friend you are. And then all of that stuff, it's exhausting. It's especially in an age of social media where you can constantly be comparing your neurotic insides with everyone else's seemingly perfect outsides. And so I have a lot of sympathy for that generation. And and one of the things that I'm really keen to get across is that women, and I don't know if it extends beyond women, but potentially marginalised people as a whole, have been sold a lie that age diminishes us or that there's not enough space yeah. for us to inhabit our true selves on this planet. And my point is that I believe that is completely untrue. <laughs> I believe it's a mm. lie we've been sold to make us feel less than. And actually, the older I've got, the more I felt my true self and the more empowered I've become. And so that I think it goes both ways, that sort of intergenerational relationship. And I, I feel very seen by the younger generation i really do like i have it's really great i i think gen z are great because i think not they do they're doing some of the things that we did but so much better like fashion 90s fashion coming back but better way better chalk me up (laughs) and and they've got that kind of um 
again, huge generalization also incoming. But I feel like they understand the power of connection and they're very social media savvy, but they put boundaries in place. And so they don't find Mm. social media that cool. And they're very good at having boundaries in their personal and professional lives. So it's a sort of amped up version of us in the 90s. (laughs) That's my take on Gen Z. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's really lovely to hear that because they get a bad rap, don't they, Gen Z? They do. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One of the things I loved about, you just made me think of this a second ago, is um, when you started How to Fail, it felt like a sort of battle cry of someone cornered, you know? Mm, um, I love that. And, Can I have that as an official uh, blurb? <laughs> not How to Fail, the battle cry of the cornered. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's yeah. great because that's where the good stuff comes from. You know, you were in a a position a point I I don't want to put words in your mouth but like it it, it seems like you're at a point in your life where things were just not connecting and I Mm. and I think as well like I wonder if there's anything in it for you about something I feel I've learned about which is entitlement Mm. and I have felt like unwittingly you know like seeing the magic eye poster come to life kind of thing like I definitely think I sort of was told myself a story that things would drop in my lap you know Mm. I would be this and I would be that and it really fucking confused me when certain things didn't work out that way but it forced me to actually stop and think about what it is I wanted to do and be yes and and I wonder if that resonates with you a hundred percent I think for me there's two things I want to say one is that if you're lucky enough to have an aspirational education, generally your teachers will encourage you to be ambitious. And sometimes Mm. there's a vanishingly little gap between being ambitious and and being entitled and just just assuming that things, as you say, will fall into your lap. And I remember being told by a teacher to write an essay age 15 about the rest of my life, basically, like map out (laughs) where you're going to be in the next 20 years and with detail. And I had a very, very clear plan that I was going to be married, I think, at ridiculously young age, like 26. And I'd have two kids and I was going to be a political correspondent on a major broadsheet and all of this. Like I, I, I had a very clear idea of where I was going to be, um, which to my mind was 
ambitious. But looking back, you're right that there's an assumption there that also leads to entitlement. And Mm. I didn't become a political correspondent on a major board sheet. I became a slightly different kind of journalist. And thank goodness, like, I'm really glad that my career has taken the curves and the loops that it has. But I think where it really impacted me was personally, I Mm. am of a certain generation, and I was raised in the 80s and 90s. And I never really questioned the fact that I was going to get married in a very heteronormative conventional way and I was going to have children it just didn't I there was no sex education at school that raised the idea that I might have fertility issues all of the focus was very much on avoiding teenage pregnancy and that became a genuine Mm. fear of mine and my classmates like that's I went on the pill for 14 years from the age of 19 like uh, you know I was just like I I absolutely have to focus on my career because I've got to ensure that everything I wrote in that essay is going to come true (laughs) and so so the point that you're referring to which is when I started how to fail and I love the term you use about disconnect because I was feeling disconnected and the the biggest disconnect of all was the disconnect I felt with my true self. And it was because mm. I'd been socially conditioned to believe that these were the things that I wanted. And then there I was, age 39, I had got married and I'd got divorced, which wasn't in the essay that I'd written age 15. Mm. <laughs> I, had, I, I had tried and failed to have babies. I'd had unsuccessful IVF. I had at that stage the first of three miscarriages. And then I'd got into a new relationship with a younger man that had ended out of the blue for me three weeks before my 39th birthday. And I felt like such a failure. Mm. And looking back now and learning what I have about failure, I understand that the most potent part of that feeling for me was that I'd failed myself according to the metric that I'd set myself. So it was a Mm -hmm. plan that I'd set myself that I hadn't fully executed. And I therefore felt that the failure was mine. What I realise is that I had never fully questioned that plan. That plan had been formulated for me by centuries of conventional heteronormative society and a fair few 1980s (laughs) rom-coms. You know, uh, and Working Girl. I don't know if you classify that as a rom-com. You probably would. Anyway, what yeah. would you say, Chris? This is the most important question. It's. I think it's funny and I love it. So, yeah. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I'd never taken the time, and possibly I'd never allowed myself the time, to question whether that's what I really wanted. And you're so right that when your life implodes, it can be so unbelievably scary. But on the other side of that fear is a sort of liberation because you're presented with a blank canvas and for the mm. first time, I felt like, oh, I I need to invent something new and I need to paint something new on that canvas because what I've been doing so far has led to this feeling of disconnect and failure. And um, it's, it's, that, it's that phrase, isn't it? Necessity is the mother of all invention. In a way, yeah. it forced me to think differently and to feel differently. And I'm very grateful for all of that now. Yeah, and it's wonderful because I think you can, one can um, sleepwalk into other people's ideas of who you are. And if you kind of tick those boxes and you kind of don't mind being it, 
you don't have to reflect much on yourself or yes. examine yourself. But then you're like, but there's something really deeply unsettled within me that doesn't like this. Yes. And you don't know what to do about it. And then enter stage left, you know, you set up a podcast or whatever. Um, but you sort of for force yourself to learn about yourself. And when you're saying about getting to this stage, which is now, you know, I'm reluctant to try and make out that the success bit of your life is the happy ending because we, mm. we should, you know, we should love all the lumps and bumps. But, you know, you're really fucking successful now. <laughs> uh, so, um, and Lily Allen said this thing, which I've always loved, which is she said, and she was being ironic because this is, that's what Lily is like, right? But um, she said, just as I've worked out what I want to say, nobody cares what I've got to say anymore. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because cause she's not 23, it was her point. And I think we are sold a big fat lie that, you know, that we don't have anything to say past a certain age, you know? And mm. the and it, it, it's almost like we I, one has to be careful to continue that myth with starting to hold back yourself you know because I find myself doing it I'm like I start to talk to me about music to like 26 year olds and then I'm like oh shut up dad and then I'm yes. like actually wait a sec I love that phrase sleepwalking into someone's idea of who you are I definitely did that <laughs> I definitely was guilty of that in all sorts of relationships romantic relationships I feel like it took me until my late 30s to realise that I'd been outsourcing my sense of self to the person I was with. I wanted to know what they wanted me to be. And then I would try my best to shapeshift and accommodate all of that. And yeah. and you're right that then you end up thinking, hang on, I don't like this, but who am I? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and therefore, my process um of becoming yeah. who i am has has taken a while i mean i'm sometimes asked if i have any regrets and i don't have any regrets but i do sometimes wish that i'd learned the lessons more quickly I, i'm a big believer mm -hmm. that the universe keeps sending you things until you learn them and there's definitely like a few relationships that i didn't have to have been in to have learned that lesson a bit more quickly and that idea of success i think it's very kind of you to say I'm successful. My definition of success has definitely changed. So mm. for me, my arbiter of what's successful or not is whether I can be my full authentic self in whatever setting I find myself. And for years and years and years, professionally, I didn't feel I could be my true self. In those romantic relationships, I didn't feel I could be my true self. Now I've taken the time to discover who that true self is and... I am that person, whether I'm recording a podcast or writing a book, chatting to you right now on a Sunday morning. Like, I feel very lucky and grateful that I get to do all of that. And I think the thing about youth and our fetishization of it as a society, I feel the the better metric is engagement. How engaged is someone? It doesn't really matter about your age as long as you're engaged with what's happening in the world and you're, you're not mm. defending yourself and how you believe the world should be against the attack of these mm. incomers these and that's why i hate it when you sort of see certain elderly white mps railing against woke culture and i just think well mm. that's you're not actually engaging with what people are trying to tell you because you're fearful and that and that leads you to entrench your viewpoint and to become ever more ignorant and so for me it's about 
staying engaged with what's happening. And some of my favourite ever guests on How to Fail are 70 plus, because at that stage, they know so much about life through having lived it, and they give fewer fucks about saying it. And I just always learn so much from those people. I had Joan Bakewell recently and Margaret Atwood. I mean, what a joy for me to get sort of sit at their feet and just say, tell me, (laughs) tell me your lessons. That is the end of part one of a lovely chat with Elizabeth Day. Part two is on the feed. We all know what to do by this point. 